Hey, good morning, everybody. Stand up. It's a great prayer. Here we go.
I thank you that your name, Jesus, has the same power yesterday as it does today, as it will tomorrow. Thank you for choosing us and letting us be able to speak your name. I pray that everything we say and do in this place today will bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, how special. God bless you guys. What a great time of worship this morning. Um, singing about our love for the Lord. Uh, it's great to gather today to do that. Um, if you haven't gathered today to do that and coming in on the arm of a friend, I hope it's just a powerful day for you today. Uh, I'm Billy, I'm the worship pastor, and uh, it's great to be here uh, to help lead you in worship and help touch the divine. You know, I've often heard that uh, like a band at a church or a music group or a choir at a church um, we're not the worship leaders, we're just the prompters. We prompt for you so that we can all uh, lift our voices to the Lord together. So that's awesome. I think God is so honored by what we all just did. Thank the Lord for that. Hey, uh, we do this thing at Hope Vale called the meet and greet. Uh, be nice to introverts. Say hi to somebody around you. We'll see you back in a second. Thank you. Well, good morning, Hope Vale. Hey, my name is Paul. I am one of the pastors here. And if you are new, if you are visiting with us today, just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. And I have a favor to ask of you. Uh, on your way in, you were probably handed a bulletin, which has a little tear-off card at the bottom. And if you are visiting with us today, would love for you to fill that card out, tear it off. You can drop it in the offering plate in just a moment. Or better yet, after the service, you can take it out to the welcome desk out in the lobby. There are some folks out there who have a gift for you and love to welcome you more fully to Hope Vale. And actually, today is a great day to be visiting here, or if you're new here or trying to figure out how to connect here at Hope Vale, we have this thing that we do every couple of months called Get to Know Hope Vale, which is really just an opportunity for you to meet some staff, ask your questions, find out a little bit more about the mission, vision of this place, find out how you can belong here at Hope Vale. So, after the service today, over in the hub, which is a room right across the lobby over in that direction, if you want to hang out for a couple minutes after the service, we would love to tell you more about Hopevale. Well, Pastor Dan, our senior pastor, is on his sabbatical, and he is doing well. And we are in work three, week three of our Story of Your Life series with Pastor Mike Whitmer, who has been a guest pastor here for this past month. It's been awesome. Yes, and we are looking forward to hearing from him again today. And so I'm excited about that. I can't wait to hear what you have to say, Mike. And I also have one more announcement that I want to let us know about. Coming up two weeks from today is our annual business meeting. This is a once-a-year gathering. It'll be happening here in the venue at 12.30 on June 2nd. Or if that doesn't work for you, then June 3rd. At 6 p.m., you can head up to our Bay City Ministry Center and catch the business meeting up in Bay City. If you would like to stop by the info desk after the service, you can pick up a copy of the proposed budget, so you might be a little more prepared for that conversation. The ushers are going to come forward right now and prepare to receive our morning offering. And as they do so, speaking of Bay City, I want to let you know that today, our campus up in Bay City has left the building right? They're out in their community doing some cleanup work, and I think that's awesome. Uh, your generosity makes it possible for Hopevale to have a presence in Bay City. And what God is doing through your giving here is in multiple ways 
just continuing to kind of expand the redemptive potential of our church. And we love that. So thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning, uh, as Billy said, just to honor you through worship and let you know that we love you. Um, And we gather to worship. We gather to be taught. um, We gather to give back to you. And then we gather to be sent back out into our communities. And so, Lord, please receive these offerings um, as an expression of our gratitude to you and our worship of you. We love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can remain seated as we continue in offering and then also in worship. The next song that we're going to be singing is one that if you are here at Hopevale on a semi-regular basis, you've probably heard a few times. It's Spirit of the Living God. And uh, it's one of those songs that I think everybody kind of connects with a different part of it. And I was even noticing in the, the title of the song, Spirit is capitalized and God is capitalized. And the thing that kept striking me as I was preparing for this week is I feel like living should be capitalized because it's the spirit of the living God. And coming off of Easter not too long ago where we celebrated that Christ is alive and that spirit is alive in us. And I think in our everyday lives, we, we sort of think of the spirit as something that just sort of sits there and, and it's there and, and we have the presence. And that's great and it's comforting. And there's hope in that. But my goodness, when we can really cling to and be moved by that living God, that God is alive inside of us. And so as you listen to the words of the song and you you sort of pick up on all of those actions that when God moves in us, when he speaks to us, when he breathes his word to us, that that requires a response, that God's not just sitting there at rest. He is alive in us and we should be moved to live for him. So Mike, if you could take us in. Hanging on every word Cause when you speak 
the way you move in us, the way you change us, Lord, let us be changed. Let us be changed today so that not only do we see things the way you want us to see them, but that we also seek you in a new way and that we seek you in the way that you want us to seek you. You have so much love for us, Jesus. We just want to praise you. We want to worship you. We want to seek you. God, live in us. Move in us. In your name we pray. Amen. morning. We're in our third, third week of what is the story of your life, and we want to start by saying that the Bible has a, has a plot. It's creation, fall, and redemption. And I want to say something that's going to make your brain tingle a little bit. It makes mine tingle, and that's that nothing about this story is necessary. Creation. God didn't have to make this place, right? God wasn't lonely, God's not a single person, right? He's not, it's, he's not a singular person. He's three persons. And these three persons live in self-giving love. So God didn't make us because he needed a conversation partner. He didn't take out a personal ad. Single deity looking for long, enjoys long walks and garden. He will provide. Right? God has always been a trinity, which means he's three persons, not just one person. He's three persons. And these three persons live in self-giving love. So creation was not necessary. It didn't feel some need that God had. But also, creation's quite appropriate. It's quite fitting for this God. If God is three persons who live in love, then it's just like this God to allow the love that the three persons share to overflow its borders and create new others like you and me to love. So creation, not necessary, but also not a shock. Same thing with redemption. God didn't have to save us. He wasn't logically required to save you and me. But if God is three persons who live in self-giving love, then it's not a shock that God would do whatever it takes to win us back. So nothing about this story is required, but it's all very fitting, creation and redemption, given who God is. In fact, have you noticed this about the the Bible, the story of, of redemption? As one, you know, the movie, the old movie, um, it's the greatest story ever told. One philosopher says, actually, it's the greatest story that ever could be told. You can't come up with a better story than what we have in the Bible. In fact, the best-selling stories just rip it off. What is Harry Potter but a rip-off of the Bible? Just switch out Jesus for Harry, and you have a best-selling book. The Bible is, you can't think of a better story than this. And here's what's crazy about it. When Jesus came, he was telling his disciples, his friends, why he was here, who he was, what he came to do, and no one got it. But then after he died and rose again, suddenly it all clicked and said, yes, exactly. If he was going to save us, that's exactly how he'd have to do it. 
Isn't that crazy? You and I would never have come up with this story. But once you've been saved by Christ, once you've given your life to Christ, on the backside, don't you think, wow, how did I miss it? If God was going to save me, it had to be exactly that way. So this morning we want to talk about the fall, why we needed saving, and then talk about at least the first part, the most important part of our salvation. So I'm reading in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 16, where the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely, you will certainly die. This is the one negative command that God gave Adam and Eve. And by the way, we know it was an apple tree. It's actually in the verse. Um, if you have a Latin Bible, the word for evil is malum, and malum also happens to be the word for apple. So in the Middle Ages, some monks were reading their Bible and said, aha, when Eve ate malum, she got malum. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> put yourself in a monastery. In a couple of weeks, you'd be laughing too. But that's where the apple story comes from. So God said, don't eat from this one tree. It's the only negative command. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty. Usually the Bible does not describe its characters. It just tells the story and lets us figure out what these characters are like. But here the Bible, right off the bat, says, watch out for this serpent. He's more crafty. He's shrewd. He's sneaky than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? <laughs> does that question make you mad? God made this beautiful world of delight, and there's this one tree he said, don't eat from. And the serpent universalized it and said, did God say you can't eat from any of them? Of course, he asked it as a question, but questions communicate, right? If someone says to you, are you an idiot? You don't say, oh, hey, I just asked. No, you said something. So the serpent, he's actually communicating something by asking, but he's crafty, right? So, hey, I'm just asking for information. Eve's answer in verse 2 is pretty good. She said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll surely die. Now, some people think that was Eve adding to God's word. God said, Don't eat of it, and she added, Don't touch it. But actually, that's a pretty good answer. This tree, and the first readers of Genesis would, would have been Jews. And Jews understood this tree was an unclean thing. And what do you do with unclean things? You stay away. You don't touch them. God would not have been amused if he came down to walk with Adam and Eve and saw them playing catch with the fruit, passing it past their mouths for pretend bites. Hey, didn't eat it. We're just playing catch. Now, when, when God said don't eat of it, he meant stay away. So Eve's response, I think, is pretty good, except... She's talking to a snake. <laughs> She's respecting a question she should have ridiculed. She should have picked up a stick and beat his brains in. How dare you? God, who made me and my husband and all this beautiful world, why would you insinuate? He's somehow against me. He's trying to keep me down. So she answered correctly, I think, but she gave the question too much respect. When the serpent talks again, He's now directly contradicting what God had said. You will not surely die. 
the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And here's, here's the nub of the fall. Verse six, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Here's what I think the fall and all sin comes down to. God said, here's this tree. It's a knowledge of good and evil. Stay away from it or you will die. The snake comes along and gives a different take on the tree. Hey, it's going to make you wise just like God. So Eve had two contradictory interpretations, right? God's interpretation and the snake's interpretation of the tree. What did Eve do? She put herself above both God and the snake and said, I'll decide this one. I'll be the judge. I think all sin comes down to that, right? The, the big seminary word is autonomy. Autonomy comes from two Greek words, namos, which means law, and auto, which means self. So self-law, or really just, I want to play judge. I want to be in charge. I want to do what I want to do because I want to do it. I don't want anyone, even God, telling me what to do, cramping my style. That's why I sin. That's why you sin. I don't sin out of ignorance. I don't sin because I'm not sure what God wants for me, because I'm not sure if God is real. I know God is real. I know the Bible is his word. I sin when I just don't care. I want to do what I want to do, and I don't trust God that he's really for me, that God who made me and made this beautiful world, that he's really on my side. And I have to strike out on my own. You might think, but they did gain something, right? The knowledge of good and evil, isn't that progress? In a way, but without God, who determines what's good and what's evil? Adam and Eve now had the categories, the concept of good and evil, but how do they know which went in which category? It depends on them. And what Adam wanted may be conflicted with Eve, and so they fight. That's why we have so many fights in our churches, in our homes, at work. Um, a few years ago, my family got a, a new storm door for the front door, and I didn't realize when we got the door that we live in a windy part of town, and my children were smaller, didn't always latch the door, and so often the wind would catch it and be whapping back and forth and the hinges would start coming out. I had to fill the holes and with chopsticks and drill new holes and put glue and put the door screws back in. And it happened like five or six times and the holes kept getting bigger and the repair got a little worse and my screws had to be longer and more jagged. And I finally set the family down and said, had a come to Jesus meeting. Look, I can only fix this door so many times. You, you guys, when you leave the house, you've got to close it and latch it. If you don't do it, the wind will catch it and the, the hinge is, is coming apart. Maybe, maybe Whitmers just can't have a storm door. I think we should be, other families have them. It seems like we should, but you know, if it happens again, we're just taking the door off. It's not going to work for, maybe it just won't work for us. And I had my, my wife, Julie, and the three kids all promised they will, we're all gonna guard the door. We're gonna latch it and close it and lock it. It's gonna be good. Well, a couple weeks later, I'm up in my office studying, and I hear this whap, 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 whap. And I run down, and I, there's the door just in the breeze, just shutting it, and the, and the hinges are coming out. And, I, ah. and my wife is teaching piano in the next room. I said, honey, the door, you, 
what's going on? And she said, well, that was one of my piano students who had just had a lesson and left and didn't lock the door. Well, that's you. That's your student. Why couldn't I? I had started a new lesson. I can't be in two places at one time. And so she was sure it wasn't her fault. I was sure it was. That's your student. For the next night, all the next day, we're going back and forth. Like, we had an agreement. You're, and we, we saw it different ways because of autonomy. We, we finally figured it out when um, the next door neighbor came over and said I'd put the hinges on backwards. Um, <laughs> but no, 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 I, I'm right on this one. I have a point. And why? Because of autonomy. Because I see it my way, and I still know in my heart I'm right. That's where our culture is, isn't it? We have a concept of good and evil, but we disagree about what's good and what's evil. We're, we're encouraging people now to be autonomous, to be the judge, to live your truth. You do you. And we now have 8 billion people following their own path, and we've got chaos. That's why God said, don't eat from the tree. He was serious. So that's the fall. All sin comes down to, I want to do what I want to do, because I want to do it. I don't want anyone, even and especially God, cramping my style. But now, the fallout of the fall. You see, sin didn't just start with Adam and Eve. It rippled out and affected all of creation. First, it's personal. It's individual. In Romans chapter 5, in verse 12, Paul looks back at Adam and says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. We call this in uh, seminary original sin. Original sin means every one of us is born guilty and corrupted for what Adam did. Adam's guilt and corruption get passed on to us, and it sounds so unfair but this is the one Christian doctrine you can actually prove. Every parent knows it's true. What's the first word your child learned? No. What's the second word? Mama, dada. And why they learn that? So they can say, no. I didn't teach my kids to scream and kick. They came that way. Right? We're all born with original sin. But sin didn't just stick with us. It rippled out and affected society. So in chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve sinned. In chapter 4, Cain is killing Abel. How do you get from eating a fruit to murder in one generation? Because that root, it's the same sin. If you're autonomous, if you're going to be the judge, if you're going to look out for yourself, for Eve and Adam, it meant eating a piece of fruit. For Cain, it meant killing his brother. It's the same sin. You do whatever you have to do to stay on top. And so we see this in our society today that you realize um, every war that's ever been fought began without a first shot. No one ever says they started it. They're just getting people back for what they have coming. So today, America wants Iran to give up nuclear weapons. Why do they have nukes? They have to protect themselves against Israel, who already has them. Why does Israel have them? They're defending themselves against their neighboring Arab states. Why, why do they need defending? Because these people are mad, because they've lost their land to Israel. Israel received the land after the Holocaust, which was a response, um, the Allies re re defeated Hitler, who was trying to cleanse the Aryan race, which he said had been polluted by Israel. 
So see how it just, look at the news today, right? All these things we're debating in our culture. How often, ask yourself this question this week as you're reading the news. How many pleas are for biblical justice? And how much is just, he started it? Our kids know this. You ever ask a child who's fighting, who started it? It's always the other guy. Right? We have the concept of good and evil. But what makes something good or evil it depends on, on our autonomous judgment. And what's good for me might not be so good for you. And so we'll fight. But sin didn't just ripple out and affect human society, also nature itself. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 22, Paul says, The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I love living in this world. I love God's creation. But we're living on the other side. Have you thought about this? We're living on the other side of an apocalypse. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. This world has been cataclysmically broken. Now, Hollywood likes a lot of apocalyptic movies now, right? There's Mad Max and Frozen and all these. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but it sounds horrific. Um, right? it's, it's a big deal, apocalypse. Well, we live in a post-apocalyptic world. Right? This world is getting cataclysmically broken by Adam's sin. And next week we'll talk about the glorious answer of Christ's salvation, how Jesus came to cross out our sin and save the planet. Uh, some takeaways about the fall before we move on to salvation. Uh, first, this is a really important these days especially, but it's always been important. We have to submit who we are to God's word. Right? If, if the root sin is autonomy and I want to play judge, the antidote is submit my whole self to God's word. I don't stand over God's word, I stand under it. Don't ever apologize for anything in this book. Don't ever say, well, it's in here, so I believe it, but if I was God, I wouldn't have done it that way. We submit our whole selves, our minds, our emotions, our bodies, we submit our whole selves to this book. If it's in here and you're reading it correctly, you can know this is for your good. Your heavenly father who made you and made this place and wants you to enjoy your life. If, it, if it's a command in here and a promise, it's for you. Claim that promise, obey that command and know it's for your good. Don't ever say, well, my God would never. That's the problem, isn't it? He's not your God. He's bigger than you and bigger than me. And don't be offended when you read something in this book that offends you. You should expect that, right? If everything I read in this book is something I would have written, I should be a little bit suspicious. That sounds like, like me. So when you read something in here that rubs you the wrong way, take that as a good sign. This is God's book. It's coming from someone bigger than you, with a, a bigger perspective, and submit your whole self to it. Uh, secondly, the story of the fall tells us we really have to, truly have to, hate sin. When has this happened for you? When has the mask been ripped off of sin and you realize it is what it is? For me it was um, back in 2000, my mentor Joe Crawford uh, was dying in a hospital. His aorta had dissected like his father several generations, uh, decades before. And he was in the hospital. I went to see him, and I went into the room, and there was this bruised, swollen figure on the bed with tubes 
in, in the body. And I said, oh, wrong room. I backed out embarrassed. And as I'm backing out, I look on the wall and there's a Polaroid picture of him. I look at the picture. I look at him. Oh, no, it's, it's, my, it's my, my friend, my mentor. Two days before, he looked like the picture. Now, I don't even recognize him. Why? Well, because of his defect he got from his father. But why do we have genetic defects? Because we live in a fallen world. Because of sin. And in that doorway, I realized I hate sin. Sin is not my friend. Sin is one day going to rob from me everyone and everything I ever cared about. I'm going to die alone with no one but Jesus. Because of sin. I hate it. I want to, as a Christian, stop celebrating the fall. It matters what I watch on TV and what movies and, and how I treat people. I don't want to enjoy sin. Sin is the enemy. And you realize that when you're at a funeral. You lose someone you love. And thirdly, there's this tension as we think about ourselves and how God looks at us. On the one hand, we have to appreciate who we are as created in God's image. We're of a value that's priceless, and yet we're also, we're rebels. We're fallen. We're created, but we're fallen. We're fallen, but we're still created. So I had a student once who was a youth pastor and said, I can't tell my youth, my teenagers, that they're sinners because they'll just hear that they, they stink and they're of no value. And I said, well, why are you thinking of sin in, in terms of self-image and self-esteem? In fact, if you want to talk that way, still, saying someone's a sinner is actually a backhanded compliment. You're telling them, you matter. You've never lectured a worm that wiggled off your hook. Come on, worm, stay on the hook. You deeply disappoint me. Now it's a worm. You don't expect much. But a person made in God's image, if Jesus died for you, you matter. If Jesus died for you, there's no stronger way to say you're valuable. But if Jesus died for you, it also tells you, and this is really tough, what your sin and what my sin deserves. Right? We are image bearers of God. We have a value you cannot put a price tag on. We don't stink, but we are traitors. We are rebels. And I hate to admit this, but I deserve to go to hell. And if I don't admit that, I can't make sense of the cross. You know, if, if desperate situations call for extreme measures, then an extreme measure is a sign you might be in a desperate situation. If I'm driving down the highway and a police car flashes its lights behind me, my wife will turn to me in her disapproving voice and say, what did you do? If a convoy of police cars is surrounding us and a TV helicopter is overhead, Julie gets a bit more accusatory. What did you do? If a fighter jet joins the chase, dropping bombs, ripping up the pavement, she's going to scream like a lady in an action movie. What did you do? Okay, think about what God did to save you and what God did to save me. God did not hand us a brochure as if we were just uninformed. God did not stage an intervention as if we were just a little bit stubborn. 
God answered your need. He answered my need with the cross. If the death of the Son of God himself was required for you and I to be saved, what did we do? Again, this is really hard. to. I don't want to admit this, but I have to admit it. I deserve everlasting, unending suffering in hell because I have rebelled against the triune God of love. And that's why Jesus died. And if Jesus died, that means the world we live in, the stakes could not be higher here, right? This is a crazy, wild place. If the Son of God died here, then anything is possible, including hell. So it's really important that we get right with God. And how do we do that? Well, first, stop. Quit. This is really hard for Americans because if we say there's a problem, okay, I see the problem, now get out of my way, I'm going to work hard and get her done. And I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to re, the phrase we use a lot, redeem your, that guy redeemed himself. He, he, he re, self-redemption. Well, that's not possible when it comes to God. Because we're in a hole, right? We're rebels. We deserve hell. And you can't do one thing to earn extra credit with God because any good thing you would do for him is something you already owe him. So you can't do makeup work when it comes to God. That's why Jesus. That's why he came. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become God's righteousness. Luther called that the joyous exchange. I give Jesus all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame, and I get from him all of his righteousness. In myself, I'm a sinner, but I'm not in myself. The gospel is Jesus has come, and if I put my faith in Christ, I'm in him, and that's the true truth. That's the real reality about, about you and about me if you're in Christ. So see that first sentence? This is not automatic that Jesus came and died for us and, and the exchange is not automatic. We have to be reconciled to God. And to be reconciled to God requires a turn. And the word for that turn is convert. And conversion has two components, faith and repentance. And faith and repentance are just two ways to describe the same turn. As we turn towards Jesus in faith, we turn our backs, we turn away from sin. So looked at from this perspective, it's repentance. Looked at from this perspective, it's faith. But you have to do both at the same time. You can't turn to Jesus in faith without turning from your sin or you will pull a muscle. It's, it's got to be both. How do you know? If you've turned, how do you know if you've converted? This is, I think, the most important question you could ever ask yourself. And the answer is not because I'm doing better or it's not because I, I, I'm getting perfect. No, the answer has got to be, here's the way to think about it. How do you tell if you've turned? Well, wherever you turn, your eyes follow, right? I'm teaching my children how to drive now and saying yesterday, just quick look at your blind spot, your car's moving forward, keep your eyes forward. Don't look that way and we about hit the back of the truck. So keep looking forward. Wherever you're turned, that's where your eyes will be. If you want to know if you've turned to Christ, ask yourself, where are you looking? 
Not am I perfect, not how righteous, how good am I, but where am I looking? And the Christian gospel, all of life comes down to this one question. Are you looking to Jesus? Looking to Jesus for your goodness, for your righteousness. Someday God will ask us why he should let us into his heaven. And the answer has got to be just very simple, Jesus. Full stop, period. It cannot be Jesus plus anything. Not Jesus plus I came to church. Not Jesus plus I was even baptized. Not Jesus plus look at all my good works. If it's Jesus plus anything, you don't have Jesus. You're still trying to save yourself, redeem yourself, and that's how you don't get saved. The gospel is grace, and grace is something you receive. It's not something you achieve. We have to humble ourselves and receive the gift of Christ. So we look at Christ for our goodness, for our, our righteousness, and we also look to Christ, and I love this part, for our sin. Um, I'm 52 now. And I used to think in my 30s that by the time I hit 50, all of my flaws would be fixed. And I'm glad to say it's true. <laughs> if you mean by fixed, that's who I am. Uh, this, these aren't changing. This is kind of my character now. So I do things and say things that still infuriate me. I'll give you an example. I have, um, my spiritual gift is sarcasm. It's also my love language. So I'm kind of stuck. So often I will say things, I think they're funny. I think it means I'm close to you because I'm teasing you. And I think you're getting it. And I realize later, oh, no, that was just, that was mean. That was just way too far. And I think, why would you, why would you say, how could you? So I have this really quick three-step process now. I used to try and self-medicate, make myself feel better. Well, you didn't mean it. You were just joking. You, it's okay. You're still a good person. And I realized, no, just admit it. Mike, you were a jerk. You were just mean. And so I say, yuck. I hate it when I'm that way. Why do I keep doing that? Then I go, yep. Without Christ, that's me. I'm a sinner. But I'm not by myself. I'm in Christ, so yippee. Right? Jesus has come. That's why Jesus. So it's a really quick three-step process. Yuck, yep. Yippee! I'm saved. It's okay. I'm not by myself. I'm a new creation in Jesus. Sometimes we waste a lot of times beating ourselves up over our sin, trying to tell ourselves it really wasn't that bad. When our wife and our they all our kids they all know it was really it was worse. Better to say, you know what? I'm sorry. That's why I need Jesus. And there may be somebody here this morning who. You feel it. You, you know in your heart. Um, you feel shame and guilt. And you, you would say, uh, Mike, if you knew how many times I've thought this or said this or done this, you would not just glibly tell me, Jesus forgives you. Just repent and put your faith in Christ and all is forgiven. You don't know what's in my heart. You don't know how bad I am. I would just say lovingly to you, you're right, I don't know your issues, but whatever your list of sins are that you think are unforgivable, you better add one more sin at the very top, the sin of pride. Who do you think you are? <laughs> you think you, little old you, has done 
done something even God can't forgive. You think your sin is more powerful than Jesus? You know, the cross wasn't for small potatoes. Jesus died for big sins, heinous sins, my sins, your sins. He's not shocked by your sin. He was kind of counting on it. That's why he died. Let's not be more impressed with ourselves and our own sin than Jesus. We may reject God. We may, like a squeaky little mouse, say no to God. But when Jesus roars yes to you, his yes overwhelms your no. I love, again, what Martin Luther said. When the devil came and reminded him of his sin, Luther said, I always promptly agreed with him. I said, you're right, Satan. Um, I am that bad. In fact, you left out a couple. Have you thought about this and, and this? But thank you for reminding me of my sin because that's why Jesus. So if it's okay with you, I just want to take a moment now and celebrate my salvation in Christ. And Luther says if you do that, every time you feel a wince of regret, every time you feel ashamed of what you've done, just run to Christ and say, that's why I need Jesus. He says if you do that every single time, you will slit the devil's throat with his own sword. And pretty soon he'll just leave you alone. See, the good news, and the gospel is good news. And the good news is not, if you try harder, you can redeem yourself. Now, the good news is Jesus has come. He's died for our sin. He bore our guilt and our shame on the cross. And when he rose, he left it in the dust. If we put our weight on Jesus, it's forgiven. The story of the Bible, of creation, fall, and redemption... It's the greatest story that ever could be told. And it can be your story too. I, 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 just as plain as I can, there's no more important question you'll ever, no more important decision you'll ever make in your whole life. So if, again, if you don't know that you know Jesus, please don't leave here without talking to me or or Paul or Billy or someone, one of the leaders, elders, someone at the help desk, someone who can tell you how you can know that you are forgiven. You don't have to live with guilt and shame. You can be in Christ, and his story can be your story. The true truth, the real reality about you. Father, thank you for Jesus. We admit gladly that we're sinners and we deserve more punishment than we even can comprehend. And we're, we're dead in the water. There's not, we can't even lift a little pinky finger to make things better between us and you. And we realize that that's why Jesus came. That if we could make things right, the cross is completely unnecessary. But Jesus asked in the garden, if there's any other way, let's try that. You answered with silence, which tells us that you, you believe the cross was required for our salvation. Father, I, 
I know that all of us need this message to admit that in ourselves, by ourselves, we're not much. We're rebels. But we're not in ourselves. We're in Christ. We put our faith in you. So thank you for the gospel. Thank you for that great reminder of Jesus and why we need him. And please, Father, if there's anyone here that isn't sure that they know your son, as we sang this morning, may your spirit be present. May you lovingly draw them to yourself. Let them realize this is a place that's safe, a place they can share who they are and receive the the forgiveness that's only possible in your son. We pray your spirit would do a mighty act, a mighty work in people's lives today. For the honor and glory of your son, we pray. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Whether our bank account is depleted or it's overflowing and we have enough to share, whether we're the picture of perfect health or we're struggling with a diagnosis, whether our life right now is smooth sailing, or everything is in turmoil and it is falling apart. We can still have rest and hope and joy and peace through Jesus Christ, but through him alone. Because guys, without him, it's meaningless. It's striving. It means nothing. We need Jesus in our lives. Would you stand? Let's close this morning crying out together, Jesus, we need you every moment of every day.
today and uh, for making us laugh and making us think and making us uh, experience God in a powerful way. And uh, if you have experienced God in a powerful way, like he said, uh, don't leave without talking to somebody about it if you feel like you need to. But uh, it's been a great day. And as you go from here, uh, just remember the things that have happened today. Remember how God has met you today. Remember the ways that you've been encouraged to live for him in a brighter, more beautiful way. God bless you, gang. Have a great one. Thanks.